Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The State Department and Homeland Security, you know, was not willing to sign something that said a FIFA credential is as good as a passport. And if you're on the the international terrorist watch list, we still have to let you in if you have a FIFA credential. Welcome to the Coffee and Football Podcast. I'm Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this show where I sit down for a long-form interview with some of the most interesting and influential profiles in the game. Today's guest is David Downs, and this is one of the most fascinating conversations I've had so far. David is one of the most prominent top executives in the game. He spent more than 30 years in the broadcast industry at ABC Sports and at Univision, where he led the acquisition and negotiations with the top leadership at FIFA for the U.S. TV rights to every World Cup between 1994 and 2014. In 2009, he was appointed as the executive director of the USA Bid Committee to host the 2018 or 2022 World Cup. He takes us through all the details of the bidding process, from building the team to aligning with lobbyists to the final announcement in Zurich. We also discuss FIFA's insane demands, the disappointment and aftermath after losing out to Qatar, the suspicion of foul play, working with the infamous Chuck Blazer, who later was implicated in the biggest corruption scandal in soccer history. All that and much more in this amazing episode. So without further ado, let's dive into it. David, welcome to Coffee and Football. Nice to be here. I typically do these interviews downtown in New York City. Today we're not downtown, we're somewhere else. Would you please uh, just describe the the setting here? Well, we're in uh, the family room of uh, of our home in Hastings-on-Hudson, about 20 miles uh, north of the Empire State Building. And it is beautiful. It's just in the fall. I, I took the train up this morning, actually, and uh, you, know, you can see the colors changing and... Uh, also, the tempo is, is slightly different up here than, than in New York. As a first question, and I have to ask it, we, we actually are drinking coffee, so I don't need to ask you if you drink coffee, but I'd like to know how, how do you typically drink it and uh, how do you make it or where do you typically get it from? 
Well, I I, uh, I guess I make my own cafe latte, uh, and uh, and we uh, we brew it at home, uh, whole bean, fresh ground every time. As it should be. Uh, how are you doing today? Not too bad. My life these days is uh, actually pretty enjoyable. Not heavily scheduled. Plenty of things that give me pleasure. So uh, no complaints. What's the most important thing you've been working on this week? Believe it or not, uh, one of the most important things I've been working on this week is the um, long-range plan for the Village of Hastings on Hudson's Parks and Recreation Facilities. We have a Parks and Rec meeting tonight. I'm one of the commissioners, and uh, you know we're blessed uh, with many acres of parkland in this tiny little village of 8,000, uh, but we've got to do some things to, uh, to make the parks appropriate for the needs of, of our residents. That's the Audubon clock in the background <laughs> chirping. A new bird call for every hour. Oh, perfect. So we, we got 11 a.m. right now. Um, describe a typical day today. What time do you get up? What kinds of routines do you have? And, and from there on? I'm a bit of a morning person. Um, we go to bed fairly early at night, so I'm usually up by seven. But I'm rarely scheduled much before the afternoon. Uh, but right now I'm I'm coaching three different youth soccer teams, including a, a prep school team uh, nearby. So typically I'm on the field by about three o'clock every day and, and sometimes have double sessions. And on the weekends, typically double sessions. <laughs> what age are they? I've got a boys U12, a boys U15, and, and the prep school is a JV team, so they run right up through junior year of, of high school. Do you have any specific readings you do during the day or in the morning to, to keep up to date? Yeah, I, I, obviously I stay in tune with the game on a, on a number of different levels. Um, you know, I subscribe to uh, various online periodicals uh, with coaching tips and tactics and, and sessions. You know, I also watch a tremendous amount of soccer on, on TV and, and my current lifestyle enables me to do that maybe more than the next person. And uh, I even uh, play the, uh, the FIFA series video game from EA Sports from time to time, which uh, I, I believe is actually an excellent uh, tool for, for young players to learn the game and also for coaches to uh, to analyze what's going on in the game. And I stay in touch with the business of soccer, uh, you know, through my network of connections, as well as um, things like a subscription to Sports Business Journal. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, you were born in the Netherlands. How come? My father uh, was a professor and uh, did his uh, PhD in anthropology and uh, actually completed his PhD work in uh, the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. And uh, that's where he met my mother and that's where, where I was born. And, and we actually traveled around uh, quite frequently from that point on. His specialty was Southeast Asia. So I actually lived in Malaya. Uh, and, and I do mean Malaya because that's what it was called at the time, not Malaysia. And so did a lot of traveling with that. But then credit to my mother, who, who is Dutch. You know, we've spent a lot of time, especially during my upbringing, um, staying in close touch with the Dutch relatives. Um, summers in the Netherlands, uh, summers in England, where uh, where one of my mother's uh, brothers moved to. So, you know, quite a strong European connection in my background. Do you speak Dutch? Heel klein beetje. <laughs> I don't. And that's know. about it. A very little bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did your mom uh, speak Dutch to you when you were a little kid? Uh, I, I think my mother and father spoke Dutch mainly as a way to talk about me behind my back. So <laughs> <laughs> so she didn't make a concerted effort to force me to learn to learn it. 
What did your parents do for a living growing up? Uh, so my father taught at the uh, at the University of New Hampshire. And, and so Durham, New Hampshire would probably be considered my, my hometown. I got there when I was about seven and uh, went off to boarding school at age 13. So I didn't spend a lot of time there. What's the most important advice your father gave you? I don't know that he ever sat down and said, now, David, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that <laughs> that you should follow for the rest of your life. However, I would say that he was both a, a great teacher and uh, loved to explain things. And I think I've somehow got that in my blood. And when I got my 30-year business career out of me I, in becoming a coach, I, I think I've become a, a teacher of of sorts. And, and he was also arguably a, a perfectionist, much to the horror of his students at, at UNH. And I think he uh, he instilled in me without ever actually saying these words that, you know, it's not really proper to do a job partially well. You're always shooting for 100%. You know, I think I, I, the difference between myself and my father may be that I recognize that not everybody, including myself, achieves 100% every time. Um, but at least making that effort is worth it. Tell me about your first involvement with soccer. Yeah, my earliest memory is probably playing it in phys ed class in, in Durham, New Hampshire growing up. And I think the game, you know, resonated with me. But it's also important to note that in Durham, New Hampshire, we had a uh, a town that, for one reason or another, had abandoned football uh, before I I moved there. So actually, you know, when I was in second and third and fourth grades, the um, the high school varsity team, you know, had all of the best athletes in the fall trying out for soccer and actually had a very very good record of several state championships in their class. And and so it was a it was a town, um, you know, that that inspired young young kids to be soccer players, and then I think that that combined with the fact that I would spend every third or every second summer over in Europe and and was maybe more exposed to the sport than others without that background would be because you have to remember in those days there wasn't much soccer in the Must United States. Different. It was very very different. It was it was challenging to be a soccer fan and 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 challenging to be a soccer player in those days. What was your first job out of college? Well, technically, my first job after graduation was working at the college in the um, public information office as the sports information director for Amherst College. Um, in those days, that was a, a fairly small job. It, it has since grown, and, and they have a, uh, a full-time uh, staff person in, in charge of that area. But uh, back then, it was... Uh, it was a fellowship for a recent graduate to uh, to stay around at the school for a year or two and 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 do that phone in football scores to the Boston Globe or you know um, run the press box at, at games. So I did that to uh, frankly to to further my journalism credentials in the hopes that I would uh, I would wind up with something in the print world and and it was at that point that ABC Sports came looking for the Olympic researcher to work on the 1980 Winter Olympic Games at Lake Placid, which is essentially as close as TV has to pad and pencil journalism. Because you can imagine in those days, if you wanted to know the the height and weight of a uh, Norwegian ski jumper, you flew to Oslo and asked him because there there was no internet to to look that up. There were there were barely any periodicals, certainly not uh, you know translated into English about Norwegian ski jumpers. 
Um, so, so it was a fascinating job that involved my traveling around the world on ABC's expense for two years, meeting athletes that would participate in the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, which of course turned out to be a sensational Winter Olympics uh, with all sorts of great storylines, not the least of which was the U.S. team upsetting the Soviets to win the gold medal, but also Eric Haydn and his five gold medals. So it was really an amazing introduction to, to television. And that was the, the miracle on ice. Yes, exactly. Were you there? I was not literally in the ice hockey arena that night because my job throughout the Olympics was to sit on the floor underneath Jim McKay's desk and hand him up cue cards, uh, telling him what was what was coming up next in our coverage and giving him insight into it. Um, so I, I ran the research area from the broadcast center, but we were all transfixed in the in the broadcast center that night. For those who maybe aren't as familiar with ABC or its importance, especially in, in those times when we didn't have as many channels uh, as today, how would you describe ABC and its standing in media back then? Well, it, it was arguably a, a place where the best and the brightest gathered to, to put on sports television, and, and we were the leader in many, many sports. We had done numerous Olympic Games at that point. Monday Night Football was doing extraordinary ratings. We had a Monday Night Baseball series. ABC's Wide World of Sports was uh, getting phenomenal ratings and, and covering a number of the, the Olympic-type sports. And it was truly a remarkable place to be in that time. And the ABC television network was was number one. And, and remember, this was when I arrived, ESPN didn't exist um, and Fox didn't exist. And uh, and so ABC Sports had a number of um, of extraordinary events that they had the rights to. And, and it was a it was utterly magical place to be at that time. What did your progress from there on then look like within the organization? So I spent the first two years working on the Olympic Games as a pad and pencil researcher to, to help the announcers understand a little more about the athletes they were covering. And, and remember, you know, we would have Chris Schenkel, our bowling announcer, doing ski jumping, and we would have Keith Jackson, our, our college football announcer, doing um, uh, our speed skating, right? So so they needed a little help in, in getting caught up. But so I did that for two years, and then we had the rights to both the Winter and Summer Olympics for the next cycle, 1984, uh, which is Sarajevo and Los Angeles. Again, two extraordinary Olympics now that I think back on it. Um, and so the logical place for me to go after that first assignment was to work on the on the production planning for those two Olympic Games. Um, and I was, I guess, about three years into that when I was fortunate enough to have um, one of the rising stars of ABC Sports come to me and explain that there was an opening in the programming department and, and would I be... Um, interested in, in switching gears a little bit and, and getting away from the production lifestyle and the heavy travel and working in the programming area. And and so I thought about it for a while and said, yes, I'd absolutely love to do it. And not trying to be overly mysterious and I don't want to name drop, but but then it turned out that this, this person who would become my mentor was Bob Iger, who has now gone on to become the chairman of the Walt Disney Company. So it probably, um, you know, a good break for my career to, to manage to briefly hitch my, my wagon to that star. And so Bob and I rose up through the programming area and, and I had a nice long run at, at ABC Sports and Programming that was, was very, very enjoyable and sort of led me in this general direction in my life. What are some of the main learnings you'd take from Bob? I think probably the single most important thing that I learned from Bob, and I learned it 
pretty early on was in the area of negotiating to acquire the rights to the events. Um, we, you know, we, we, the two of us were doing essentially all of the program acquisition for ABC's Wide World of Sports. And in those days, we, we had not just 52 Saturdays a year on the air, but, but, um, some Sundays they had sort of expanded the franchise. And so we were buying everything from the world weightlifting championships to the, Duke Kahanamoku surfing championships and, and so doing negotiation after negotiation after negotiation and, you know, being, uh, being somewhat mathematically oriented and having a perfectionist father. And, you know, I was a pretty tough negotiator and, and wanted to win, right? I've always had a competitive side of me. And, and so I wanted to win almost at all costs, um, in our negotiations. And I think Bob was really the first person who taught me in business that if you, win a negotiation, you know, that, that means that somebody loses it. And that person is, is allegedly your partner for the duration of that, of that contract. And that makes no sense whatsoever. And, uh, so I think he was, he was very good at, at guiding me along in these negotiations and saying, look, you know, yeah, you have some leverage on this guy. You can beat him up a little bit more if you, if you want to. But remember, we want to renew him in three years or four years. And, and maybe, you know, you can be a little more magnanimous in your approach. And, and I've always taken that to heart ever since. And uh, I think it's served me well. Take me through that process. So in, in acquiring rights to different events, how does it typically happen? Well, it varies. Um, but generally, you know, the, the, the main principle is, is that unlike news and public events, which all broadcasters have a right to, to cover, such as the debates, you know, the presidential debates, sporting events are sold on an exclusive basis within, within territories. You know, there aren't many new sporting events popping up. So typically you would have an incumbent broadcaster, you know, for each major event within the territory of the United States. And that incumbent may or may not have a negotiating position that, uh, you know, gives them a first opportunity to renew their contractual rights. Uh, but also in other in instances, the organizer says, you know, it's time for a change and we want to put this out to bid. And so a lot of it is, a lot of it is understanding, um, the timing of when those events will go up for bid and, and making sure that the organizers of those events know you're interested. And then the process can vary. I mean, in, in some cases, you can convince an organizer that they should negotiate with you and arrive at the best possible deal with you because there's an advantage to your network covering the event. You can do things that other networks can't. And in other cases, you're, it's simply about, you know, sealed bids and putting in the, the most amount of money or the most coverage hours or something of value to the organizer that, that you think will, uh, will, will allow you to, to defeat the competition and, and win the rights to, uh, to cover the event exclusively. I, I think if I can kind of jump ahead and, and, and guess your next question, I think one of the more fascinating acquisitions that we did at ABC Sports um, involved the 1994 World Cup rights. And you have to begin the story with the television coverage of the 1990 World Cup in Italy. And that event was covered on the Turner Networks. I, for the life of me, I don't recall TNT probably did exist, may not have had an enormous amount of carriage. Um, TBS, the superstation, certainly did exist. And I believe most of the coverage was on TBS. And uh, I know for a fact that they were still running commercials during the course of the game action. Not many and not very long, but they might have you know, three or four 60-second interruptions uh, while the live action continued on. And I, I remember a bunch of us were gathered in my office 
that summer, and we had on the coverage. And the president of ABC Sports at the time, Dennis Swanson, walked into my office, saw us all watching soccer, said, you know, the next World Cup is in the United States in 1994. I think it's a great event. You guys, obviously, you think it's a great event. You're all glued to it. How are we going to get the rights, boys? What are we going to do? So myself and, and some others in the office put our heads together and we said, well, you know, how are we going to go to FIFA and get the rights to this event on an affordable basis when obviously it's very difficult to commercialize the event? You know, what can we possibly do to come up with a package that won't lose us a ton of money, uh, will allow us to cover the event the way it should be covered, and basically put a great sporting spectacle on ABC Sports? you know, what can we do? And so I actually made a trip over to Italy before the World Cup was over and met some of the U.S. soccer officials over there and some of the FIFA officials and kind of registered our interest in, you know, in televising the World Cup when it came to the United States. And then we went back and we put our heads together and, and tried to figure out what to do. And, and ultimately, we came to the conclusion that if we were able to show FIFA that we would broadcast the World Cup without commercial interruption, which had never been done before in the United States, that we would show every single match live. And we had the enormous asset of having a relationship with ESPN and who had already formed ESPN2. So that did mean that we could put you know, a dozen games on the ABC network proper and another 30 on ESPN and whatever was left on ESPN too, um, you know, that we could put together a pretty compelling package. And ultimately what we arrived at was the notion that we would go to FIFA sponsors exclusively. And a number of them were big American companies already. And that we would promise FIFA a, a no ambush commercial free telecast and pay them some money and uh, and and put it on the ABC network and ESPN in a way that, that they had wall-to-wall coverage of, of the event. So then we had to go, before we even sat down with FIFA to put this package on the table with them, we had to enlist the sponsors. So that's where the ABC sales team took over and they, um, you know, they went around and they canvassed the, uh, I want to say there were nine main FIFA partners at the time. And uh, lo and behold, they managed to get five people to say yes they would um, they would actually support ABC's bid for the rights by pledging to purchase one-fifth of the commercial inventory in the World Cup and so when the time came for for an open bidding for this you know the the bidders were each given a chance to present their concept to FIFA uh, we went in and we presented this this concept of you know commercial free broadcast um when i say commercial free the commercials would be before the before and after before yeah. kickoff and after and at halftime but only using these five you know huge fifa sponsors and and we said and by the way since we've already sold the advertising time this is the money <laughs> so we have no option but to, we'll give you 100 percent of the money it'll be a break even for us and this is what it is take it or leave it we don't have any room for negotiation but that that was such a compelling process to um, and, and pitch to FIFA that they thought this is terrific. This is what we want to happen, and and they selected us to uh, to be the broadcaster for the 1994 World Cup. And uh, the only little tweak was that they said, um, you know, you have five of our nine sponsors, but what if the other four actually want to purchase some time? And and we we actually in our commercial format we had 
five 30-second commercials immediately before kickoff, five the second the first half ended, five immediately before kickoff of the second half, and five at the end of the game. And we thought to ourselves, well, you know, I mean, it, it's not much. And, and it was the same, the same five sponsors in, in each of those pods. And uh, we thought, well, we could probably do one more two-minute break in the middle of halftime, but it wouldn't be that good. But, you know, I'm not sure who would want it. But And so we, we offered that up for sale um you know, on a, on a Friday in August of 1993 to the four remaining FIFA sponsors, and, and they snapped it up within an hour. <laughs> Do you remember who the, who the sponsors were? I, I don't. I don't. I, I could look it up, but, uh, but it was extraordinary. So, so we had a you know, complete sellout of that World Cup um, under this, you know, what had been never before tried in the United States commercial format, which is now essentially what everybody does. And one of the things we did to, to sort of sweeten the deal for the FIFA sponsors was to, to put their logos on the screen underneath the clock and divide that into sections. We divided each game into fifths and, and, uh, and, you know, made an announcement that the next, you know, the next fifth of the game is being brought to you commercial free by Coca-Cola or Anheuser-Busch. Who were the main players on the FIFA side of things when you negotiated? Well, actually, the, the general secretary, Sepp Blatter, at the time, before he was elevated to president, was uh, that's who, uh, who we dealt with uh, both for the 94 and the, uh, and the 98 uh, rights acquisition. What was your first impression of him? Uh you know sophisticated swiss businessman you know comfortable in multiple languages highly passionate uh for the game uh, but also i think at the time very cognizant of the fact that the game was not as developed in the united states as um, as it was in in other countries and and recognized that in the long term increasing the commercial market for the sport in the united states would be a huge win for fifa what would those negotiations look like? Would you typically travel over to the FIFA headquarters? Would they come here? Yeah, I'm typically over to FIFA headquarters, correct. Um, although in, in certain instances, when I was at Univision, they would send advanced teams to the United States to talk to broadcasters and gauge their preliminary interest. And then ultimately the final bidding and, the, and final contract negotiations would be in, in Zurich. And we negotiate for those. Is it always... It's per tournament, or do you do it as a package for a few tournaments? Well, in, in the United States, on the English language side, it started out as sort of a one tournament at a time. So we negotiated at ABC for 94 alone, and then for 98 alone. And then uh, when I moved over to Univision, shortly after arriving at, at Univision, we actually were asked to bid on a two-event package. And so we purchased the rights to 2002 and 2006 as one bundle. And in addition, by the way, all of the FIFA intervening events. So Women's World Cup was part of that package as well as um, as well as the under-21 uh, World Cup and the under-17 World Cup. Um, and again, 2010 and 2014 were bundled. And, uh, and my understanding is that 2018 and 22 were bundled, again, for both English language and Spanish language. While at ABC, you rose through the ranks. You became the senior vice president of programming. What does that role entail? Head of the programming department, essentially, and, and so in charge of the acquisition of the exclusive rights to the properties that the, that the network covered, uh, as well as uh, setting the schedule for the network. You know, at a, at a general entertainment network such as ABC, sports doesn't 
own specific time periods that are theirs to program 100%. So literally every event that we would put on the air was some sort of a negotiation with the the network superstructure, if you will, to uh, you know to determine, okay, yes, you can televise a college football game from 3.30 to 7 on this Saturday, or yes, you can do Monday night football for this period of, of three months on Monday nights. So we were involved in the uh, the acquisition process. We were involved in the scheduling of, of the events, and that would mean decision-making such as this golf tournament merits four hours on Saturday, four hours on Sunday, or this golf tournament merits, you know, two hours on Saturday, two hours on Sunday. And then then probably the third aspect of that was ensuring that all the other aspects of, of the ABC broadcasts um, were in sync with our contractual rights, obligations, privileges, right? So, so that, you know, the producer of the soccer match knew you know what we could and couldn't do knew what his access to the stadium was when that was and so on so all those things that go into a into a contract negotiation would flow through the programming department and they would make sure that those went out to the to the production teams when they were assigned and we ensured that you know that that we lived up to our to our contracts what's your most memorable moment of the 94 world cup Without a doubt, the most memorable moment for me from the 94 World Cup was um, was the end of the match that the United States lost um, to Brazil in Palo Alto in the in the round of 16. I mean, I I, I had tears in my eyes as the uh, as the national team were were basically allowed by the very humble and gracious Brazilians to take a uh, a lap of honor <laughs> around the stadium and thank thank the country in effect for for their support uh, of both the team and and the World Cup, and it had a um, it had a bit of a personal edge for me too because I had fought very hard that day, and and I'm probably going to get the date wrong, but the the day was a Monday, and uh, and I, I guess it must have been somehow associated with the July Fourth weekend if it wasn't literally July Fourth. I believe it was July Fourth. Maybe it was literally July Fourth, um, but we had you know we talked about how difficult it is to schedule sports on a network. I had pushed very hard for that particular round of 16 game to be televised on the ABC television network and not on ESPN or ESPN2, because in those days, the difference in exposure and therefore ratings was was huge. And uh, I would say we got pretty lucky when it wound up being the US versus Brazil. And, you know, probably at that time was the highest rated soccer telecast in the history of the United States. You know, the combination of, of having sort of had a business involvement in setting the stage for that particular game to be broadcast on ABC, to have the game be so stirring and, and wonderful and close. And um, and then that moment afterwards, <laughs> hard to forget that ever. And it was a phenomenal game. I do I do remember it. I believe it was Bebeto, one nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Tony Miola made a rare mistake for him in that tournament. I think he, he played for the pass across the box as opposed to the shot to the near post. And, you know, as a keeper, you probably, if you had it to do over again, you always play for the shot and worry that your co-defenders will, will worry about the pass. But, hey, it happens. It was, uh, I think everybody who was associated with that game would agree that the U.S. put up a heck of a fight. You know, no one expected them to win, especially against what you know, the team that would ultimately become champions, but that they they held up their end of the bargain very, very well. Yeah, and it, and it really put the U.S. on on the map, and several of those players obviously still are around yeah. in multiple capacities.
you remained with ABC for 20 plus years. How did the transition then over to Univision happen? So in 1998, I had just left ABC Sports proper to work for the ABC Television Network, that superstructure I was talking about. And it was right around that time that ESPN was having more and more influence on ABC Sports. And Steve Bornstein, the then president of ESPN, had been assigned as president of ABC Sports, replacing Dennis Swanson, my prior boss. And so I moved on to the network itself. And then within about I don't know, a month or two of, of my joining the network staff, all of us at the network staff received notice that uh, our jobs were being transferred to Burbank, California, because Disney now owned us. And uh, they thought it would make sense for the network superstructure to be closer to Disney headquarters. And uh, ABC Entertainment was already out on the West Coast, obviously. So they were building a building in Burbank, and all of our jobs would be transferred with or without us. I think there were about 300 of us on that list. I'm not sure more than 30 wound up moving in order to retain their jobs. In my case, my daughter was going to be a senior in high school the year we would have made the move, and my son was going to be a freshman in high school the year we were going to make the move, and it just didn't make any sense for me personally. So I informed ABC that, you know, after a great 20-plus year run, I just couldn't do the move. And they, you know, the deal was you basically kept your job until such time as that building was ready, but it did sort of put me in play and put me on the market. Coincidentally, within, you know, sort of a month of my making the announcement that I wouldn't be able to to commit to the move, even though ABC was willing to employ me for another year, you know, while they were building the building, Univision came knocking and said, we're looking for somebody with um, English language major network sports experience to work at Univision. And I said, well, yeah, but I probably can't move to Miami <laughs> if I couldn't move to LA. Because the headquarters, sorry, Miami. Well, a lot of the headquarters, yeah. production headquarters, certainly. And um, frankly, as it turned out, 98% of the sports staff <laughs> was was in Miami. And, and they said, no, nah, you know, I think we have a very large presence in New York and, and we'd be happy for you to work out of New York if you, as long as you're willing to make your face shown in Miami on a pretty regular basis. And that, that seemed like a good, good compromise to me. And, and so that's what we went with. And, and, you know, the timing turned out to be perfect. And of course, my soccer knowledge turned out to be, uh, you know, a huge asset in getting the job. You, you can imagine if you're bringing in a non-Hispanic executive to run the sports division at Univision. And it's the largest Spanish network. Yeah, yeah. And the performance in viewers for soccer were equal to those in, in English at the time. And, and it was 90% of the programming, sports programming for Univision. So it was pretty critical that if somebody came in in an area where the staff was all fluent in Spanish and all from a variety of different uh, Latin American sort of countries of origin and, and Hispanic cultures, you know, that whoever came in be credible <laughs> at least. And so I think that might my soccer background. And uh, and at that point, it's interesting now that I think about it, that was sort of the time when I was really ramping up my volunteer youth soccer coaching. And so, you know, I, I think I was coaching my son's team in the Westchester Youth Soccer League, and, and um, I was getting a little more serious about it. Um, and so it was kind of a nice confluence of sort of personal involvement in the sport and professional involvement to suddenly go to a place there where it was the be-all and end-all. Football, football, y más football. <laughs> <laughs> How's your Spanish? Uh, very poor. Uh, and, and probably worse now that it's been almost a decade since 
<laughs> since I was at Univision. Take me through the most interesting or particular negotiation you went through during your time there. I mean, I think the, the most dramatic was probably the, uh, the bid to retain the World Cup rights uh, for, for Univision for the 2010 and 2014 World Cups, which, as I said before, were bundled. And those negotiations took place in the summer and fall of 2005. So before we actually televised the second of our two events that we currently own, before we televised the, the World Cup in Germany. And it was during those negotiations where we actually negotiated with FIFA as the incumbents, agreed on a price with FIFA, spent an entire week in Zurich negotiating the fine points of the contract from eight in the morning to, to literally midnight for an entire week. It was Labor Day weekend too. I remember that. My wife remembers that. Painfully. And uh, when we wrapped that up, we found out that FIFA had been doing the exact same thing with NBC Sports and Telemundo in an adjoining building <laughs> and somehow managing to keep, you know, the, the two groups apart from one another. Uh, and then they, they then put both options, a fully negotiated price and signed contract by Univision and one by NBC Telemundo on the table before the executive uh, committee and said, okay, guys, which which do you want? We'll, we'll sign the one you guys want. And it was at that point that uh, Chuck Blazer stood up and said, well, look, I, I live here and I can tell you that ABC ESPN on the English language side and Univision on the Spanish language side are the networks that you want to be with. And uh, I don't know that you know that you are maximizing your circumstances if you hand it to NBC and and Telemundo and i suspect that if you go back to the table and and have a you know take those signed contracts but then put them out to bid price wise i i suspect you'll get the money that you're seeking but i just don't think you should take either of them right now and you should put a time out on this and sure enough um the fifa executive committee voted not to accept either contract either signed contract and go back to the drawing board if you will and have a bid put together and um we then were told that if univision was told and and abc espn was told that if if you can put together a package of television rights um of extraordinary domestic value to the Federation of the United States, we, we would be grateful, and and that would certainly prejudice, um, you know, FIFA's decision in in your favor, provided your money is good. Um, and and so we actually, in the course of that month, negotiated a deal to televise for eight years, MLS, U.S. national team games, a couple other tournaments, and and even even sort of the what would become the foundation for the Concacaf Champions League. So a very very broad package. Um, and so when we went back to FIFA, you know, we said in addition to raising our money to X and, and, you know, sticking with the contract that we signed, we just want you to know that we're, you know, we have an agreement in principle to, uh, to televise and support soccer domestically in the United States for the next eight years. And we think you should consider that as a, you know, when you make your decision. And, uh, ultimately, we did win. Probably we won on every level. <laughs> I, I think we, we accelerated our money enough that, um, that, that, that probably topped out over NBC Telemundo. And, um, and obviously this package was helpful. And, and so that's how we retained the rights. And, uh, as it turned out, um, Univision was on the eve of, uh, of selling the company to a consortium of, uh, private equity firms. And so 
I think to have lost the rights to the World Cup very publicly, uh, in, you know, in that moment would have <laughs> would have been bad for that deal. And uh, and and getting that deal completed when we did, um, you know, on the eve of of the 2006 World Cup and on the eve of the purchase, I think was enormously valuable to the company. And and so you know, sort of stands out as as a hugely critical deal for all sorts of reasons. Us as fans and observers from the outside, and obviously very much so fueled and helped by the media, and I think with some of the latest developments obviously surfacing. Uh, but during that time, and I want to I want to come back to kind of the present. But during those times, did you feel like those negotiations and processes was it always fair, or <laughs> were you already then suspecting that there was a lot of other things going on behind the scenes beyond obviously having both you guys and then the NBC guys there at the same time without you knowing that yeah i i mean i i think um it's fair and negotiations don't always go together hand in hand i i think the most that that either party can really ask for in a negotiation is knowing what the terms and conditions of the negotiation are. So what was unfair about that was simply that we didn't know that they were negotiating simultaneously with our competitors. They had every right to negotiate simultaneously with our competitors. It just seems like a you know, if if you felt that that was the honorable thing to do, then it shouldn't bother you to tell us that, <laughs> that that's what you're doing. Um, but every negotiation is different, as I've said before. Some are, are sealed bids. Some are, you know, no, we want you to be our broadcaster and we want to sit down with you and work this out. And if we can't work this out, then we're going to go throw it open to, to others. But you're our first choice. And and I, I think all we could ever ask as broadcasters were that we were we were told what the rules were. So we knew what the playing field was like. And the playing field wouldn't always be tilted in our in our behalf, and we couldn't ask for that. Um, but at least if we knew the rules, we could we could manage our circumstances as best as possible. Twelve it's o'clock. Twelve o'clock. Another bird has <laughs> chirped. <laughs> so you remained with Univision for about eight years, up until two thousand and nine, and then you were appointed the executive director with U.S. Soccer Federation to head up the bids for the twenty eighteen or the twenty twenty two World Cups. How did that position come about? So, as you can imagine, during the course of, of the negotiations with ABC and our coverage of the '94 World Cup, and then and my involvement in uh, at Univision and with the U.S. national team um, broadcasts on Univision, I got to know the you know members of the U.S. Soccer Federation headquarters pretty well, and and uh, Sunil Gulati, the president, um, especially well. And uh, Sunil knew of my passion for the sport and he also you know knew of my broadcast expertise enough to actually have me as an invited speaker at his senior economics seminar at Columbia University on numerous occasions to talk about the economics of of televised sports and uh, so we had a we had a personal relationship as well as a as a professional relationship and um, it was around I think Thanksgiving weekend of um, 2008 that he asked me to meet him at a diner in the city and and have a cup of coffee and uh so I you know didn't know what it was about I sat down with him and he said uh, look I'm about to head off to the FIFA Congress and it was somewhere in Asia I think at the time in in December 2008 and they're going to make the announcement for uh how the bids are going to go for 2018 and and 2022 and and what the processes are and I have a feeling that you might be a good candidate to uh to run um 
our bid. And, and you have to understand that the, there was a mandate at FIFA headquarters that the bid couldn't be run literally within the headquarters of the participating federation. It had to actually be a body, you know, that was specifically assigned to run the bid. So, so it couldn't be an in-house bid necessarily, although each bidding federation was heavily associated with its. Why is that? Uh, I'm not sure why. It just was the way they, they set up the ground rules that, that time around. And they, I'm sure the ground rules will be slightly different this time around. But at any rate, so they, they did need to create a kind of a, a bid committee that was supported by the U.S. Soccer Federation, but, you know, sort of specifically tasks to, to, to focusing on the bid. And Sunil only half jokingly said, you know, it's, David, it's a, it's a deal you can't refuse. I mean, you get to do something historic for your country. Our chances of winning are really good. And, you know, I'll only pay you for two years and you'll get a 50% pay cut <laughs> from what you're making now because we can't afford to pay you what you're making now. And I said, wow, that's, that's terrific. That's <laughs> where, generous. Where do I sign? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but all, all kidding aside, it, 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 you know, he knew me well enough to know that it came at a, at a very good time in my life. Um, my, my kids had, you know, graduated from college and were, were self-sufficient and, um, I had, you know, been more than 30 years in broadcasting and uh, the mortgage was paid off on my house. And uh, so I knew that, you know, I could afford to uh, downscale my, my lifestyle a bit. And, uh, and I didn't necessarily need to have uh, a corporate job with, with Univision. And, you know, I thought, I, I did believe that, that A, our chances were really good and B, it would be a really good thing for soccer in the United States. And, and it was, you know, a way for me to contribute even more to the sport than I had been contributing, you know, as a behind the scenes broadcaster trying to encourage people to watch it. So I did actually jump at the chance and, and sure enough, they, you know, published the, uh, they published the rules in December and then February 1st was the deadline by which each bidding federation had to, uh, had to announce that they were bidding. And, and so February 1st was the day I started on that in 2009. Who were the other, um, people on that team? We had a very skeleton team. My right-hand man was uh, John Christick, but I was employee number one and, and we didn't have an office. And I, I basically, you know, solicited resumes and met people at Starbucks. And, you know, we, we formed the whole thing from scratch within, uh, a, within a month or so. But I think it's important to understand that the concept that we, we did it on was very scalable. So rather than bring in uh, an in-house architect or an in-house lawyer or an in-house Washington lobby, we went out to, you know, the biggest and best firms around the country that specialized in those areas and said, we're, you know, we're hopelessly underfunded, um, you know, but we believe we have a really good thing going here. We'd like you to, you know, tell us how you can work for us at half your regular rate and, and only bill us the hours where you're really, truly working and, and you know. Who funds it? Well, so, so the bid... Um, the bid uh, for the U.S. Uh, was funded by the U.S. Soccer Federation using, in part, reserves that they had remaining from the, the success of the 1994 World Cup and, in uh, in part, through donations from the soccer family with state associations and MLS teams and, and so on. So it is privately funded. It's not funded by taxpayer dollars. And that, you know, therein lies a big, big problem because when you're competing, whether it's for the Olympics or, or for the World Cup, um, many of the nations that you're competing against um, have publicly funded bids and, and are spending at a, at a much higher rate than you are. But I, I was very proud of the fact that we, we did it, you know, for a sum of money that, you know, was probably, uh, 
one fifth to one seventh of what, say, England spent. Um, How much money do you need for that? Well, it it varies. I mean, you can spend a crazy amount. Qatar allegedly spent 150 million bidding. You know, our, ours was on an order of magnitude of of you know more than one million, less than ten. You know, and and we met every specific requirement imposed by FIFA and then some and put together really a magnificent bid, but we didn't spend, you know, seven figures uh, getting Zinedine Zidane to endorse our bid, for instance. And, and you know, so there would have been ways to spend much more <laughs> than we spent, but we uh, we were able to contract with all the stadiums and, and cities and, and hotels and training fields and the federal government and, and you know, make videos and make books and, and so on, do all the things that were required, send people on lobbying trips. We're able to do all of that uh, on our budget, um, in part because of the kind of way we structured this skeleton staff in New York who would oversee the activities of an outside public relations firm or an outside Washington lobbyist or an architecture firm or whatever. Take me through that. So you're, you're putting together the team of resources, then what happens next? And what are the steps and the timeline up to the bid? Well, FIFA's initial um, requirement was that, you know, you, you come up with a signed, sealed and delivered World Cup organizing structure, meaning contracts using FIFA's template in place with every city, every stadium, every hotel, every training field, and with the US government. And you you get that done by a certain deadline, I think we had from February. Well, we didn't receive the, the templates until May, and we had until the following uh, following May, roughly one year to uh, to ship them over, completely executed. You know, we also had to come up with a with a concept. Um, you know, for what type of World Cup it would be, and everything from you know budget and ticket pricing and revenue um, to social impact and fan fests and transportation logistics and and so on, television schedule. All of that had to be put into um, what turned out in our case to be about a sixteen hundred page book, five volumes actually. <laughs> You know, that codified all that. And then we had to ship another, I don't, God knows, it was like two complete pallets of documents, um, basically all the contracts that we did to FIFA headquarters in triplicate or maybe if it was even six times over. I can't remember what it was. It was something ludicrous. Um, but there, there's a fair amount of, you know, physical work that has to be accomplished in that, in that year period. And all the while you're trying to win the hearts and minds of, uh, of your own country's citizens on the merits of hosting the World Cup. I mean, not everybody thinks it's a great idea, just as not everybody thinks it's the greatest idea to host an Olympics in your city because there is you know, some sacrifice involved and, and some headache of logistics and overcrowding and so on. But you're trying to do that. And then you're trying to win over the, the votes of the FIFA executive committee, which at the time, that was the process. 24, 24 votes. We knew we needed 13. During the lead up to that, what were the main challenges? Well, I, I think actually one of the challenges was whittling down the number of cities and stadiums in the United States um, that were candidates to host. And, uh, you know, FIFA actually said you had to have a, I think it was a minimum of 14 and a maximum of 18 cities or, or stadiums. They, you could have multiple stadiums in one city. And we honestly had, um, you know, in our first short list of, of legitimate stadiums, I think we had uh, over 70 in the United States that were capable, you know, at least on a 
you know, Wikipedia level glance of, uh, of hosting a World Cup match. And, and so, you know, it was really an incredible process to try and figure out how to turn that into 18 terrific ones and then 18 terrific ones that in, in turn would, would sign contracts, um, provided by FIFA. We actually didn't get two cities. The stadiums would have been fine, but the cities themselves, uh, two cities of magnitude actually didn't sign. One was Chicago that had just come off a losing Olympic bid. And so politically, it was, uh, it was very, very difficult for them to hitch their, their wagon to a, to another bid. And another was San Francisco, which, um, you know, at the time we were very uncertain about stadium possibilities in San Francisco. And um, as you can imagine, um, California politics are, are very, very, uh, I guess, laborious would be, that, you know, we were on such a short timeline that getting through the, the political situation there was going to be, was going to be difficult. Um, so we, we ended up with two, you know, fairly big omissions um, because it is very challenging to do that under that, under that time frame, But, uh, you know, so that was challenge number one. Challenge number two, obviously, was um, was knowing how the vote was going to go and who was going to do what, and and um, and obviously, in the end, we didn't, you know, we didn't get that right um, for whatever the reasons were. Um, but you know, we we did not know that uh, Qatar would, you know, have have that strong a following. So. Very diplomatically put, I'll say that. Well, I, I mean, believe me, if I had any proof of, you know, what went down personally, I would have been the first to, to offer it. Um, but those things typically don't come with proof, do they? I guess not. But uh, during that, even before, maybe we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit. So in going through this process, the FIFA delegates obviously visit each site. No. Um, oh, really? A- actually, um, some FIFA executive committee members do come through your country and um, on the course of natural things their their national team might be playing your national team in in one of your cities or they might have personal business and you know look you up and say hey hey I'm in town you know let's talk but it actually isn't an obligation for them to visit the the bid and inspect it in any way fifa actually sent over a six person technical inspection team to each of the bidding nations after the paperwork was received in May and before another round of meetings at, at FIFA headquarters in, in October uh, of 2010. And and so our visit was a uh, was literally a five-day whirlwind. I mean, it was – and when I say five days, I think that included the arrival day from Europe and, and the departure day to Europe. So you can imagine, I mean, we, we couldn't – we couldn't even scratch the surface when you have 18 cities as far flung as as uh, Miami and Seattle. <laughs> um, you know, you're not going to uh, you're not going to be able to show everybody everything. But we did we did manage to take FIFA's technical inspection team from New York to Washington to uh, to Miami to Dallas to Houston, I think, and then they departed from Houston, and we managed to show them not only. You know, the major stadiums in those five cities, but also potential broadcast centers, um, potential training fields, hotels. Well, we put them up at hotels that would have been in our hotel package, et cetera. So we were able to give them a bit of a feel, but you know, how, how sad is it that you can't throw a, a modern, you know, tech oriented city that's eco friendly like Seattle <laughs> and beautiful to boot into the mix, right? We, we just couldn't. Logistically, we, we'd spent the day going cross country to get to Seattle. We, we would have lost an opportunity that, uh, you know, we had to show a couple sites in between. So, 
I guess you made a decision to aim for the 2022 World Cup versus the 2018 World Cup. Is that correct? Not initially. Okay. So, so when we first announced that we were bidding, it yeah. was um, both World Cups were open to everybody that was bidding. And, and was it one package for both? Well, you, you had no. It was duplicate of everything. You had to sign a deal with with the city of uh, you know of Dallas for to host the 2018 World Cup and one to host the 2022 World Cup. Huh. And so all our paperwork was done, you know, in in duplicate in that sense. And then what happened was that the feedback we started getting from the executive committee was, hey guys, on one hand we have all these wonderful European nations bidding, and they're pretty good. And, you know, they, we know they can host a successful World Cup. And on the other hand, you have these four Asian nations and the United States bidding, and you guys are pretty good, but let's not kid ourselves. The makeup of the executive committee is tilted heavily towards Europe, and we think it's probably likely that the first one is going to go to a European nation. And, and when that feedback started coming to us, one by one, our competitors from Asia dropped their 2018 bid and concentrated on 2022. And we were actually the last uh, of the bidders to switch to 2022 alone from among that group. You submit the book in May. What was your and the team's feeling? Was there anything else that you felt at that point that could have or should have gone into it? No, I don't, I don't think from the technical side, I, I think the bid was as, as good as it, it can possibly be in the United States. I mean, there are always going to be some issues involved in hosting a major international event in the United States that will be done the U.S.'s way and not the way of the organizer. So to give you one very small example, but still meaningful, I mean, the State Department and Homeland Security, you know, was not willing to sign something that said a FIFA credential is as good as a passport. And if you're on the, the international terrorist watch list, we still have to let you in if you have a FIFA credential. I mean, we, our government would never sign that, should never sign that, will never sign that. So, you know, I, I want to say that up to those sorts of issues, our bid was as technically perfect as, as anything that could be there. The, the technical inspection team by FIFA said so. They also did a, um, uh, they had McKinsey, I believe, do a uh, economic study. Um, and they came out and told all the executive committee members, the study shows that, you know, on a scale of one to a hundred, U.S. is a hundred and, you know, so-and-so is a 72. And so, you know, I think we, we felt very satisfied that we had done all we could to convince everybody that we could successfully host the World Cup. That was never really an issue. The issue became who else could successfully host a World Cup and why would you want to award it to them instead of the United States? And, you know, it was ultimately a political process. And anytime it's a political process, not, not, you know, determined by, you know, technical or mathematical rankings, um, you know, there can be an outcome, you know, that, that goes against you. And certainly one of the things that we heard very early on and we could do nothing about was, well, U.S., you've had your turn. And, you know, we would say, well, Japan and Korea have had their turn too. So I guess that eliminates three of us. And, and by the way, if that is the final decision, then why are we wasting our time and effort if you're, if you're not going to give it to us? So we didn't think that was necessarily going to be a backbreaking kind of uh, 
you know, attitude towards us, but nonetheless, it was a sentiment that we heard and, and that we were concerned about and, and that frankly, we couldn't do anything about. You want to hold against us that we held the most successful and highest attended World Cup in history? Okay. Guilty as charged. You know, what, what can we do? Uh, we think that that shows that, uh, you know, we should host another one and, and, and we think that there's room for growth and, and, you know, the, the next one we host will set the bar even higher for everybody else to shoot at. We don't think it should be held against us, but, you know, we knew we couldn't escape that, that notion because we did. We held it. Who did you see as your, um, main competition? I would have said, um, Australia. You know, they had hosted two quite successful Olympics. I think it's a very hospitable, country. It's large enough to have enough, you know, kind of diversity of locations. It has real cities. It's a, it's a tourist destination of sorts. Um, there were some negatives about Australia, but, um, and, and they, and they hadn't held a world cup before and their team was starting to come on a bit and, and, and play better. So I, I would have said if we're going to lose, it's probably most likely to them. That, that didn't mean I thought we were going to lose. I thought we were going to win. I thought we were going to win until the paper came out of the envelope. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So once you submitted everything, then what happened? Did you all travel to the FIFA headquarters for the announcement? Well, when you say all, I think each delegation was limited to 30 persons. And, and so we actually traveled some more people who worked behind the scenes for us who weren't even allowed in the room, unfortunately. But yeah, so a group of us traveled over for those announcements in December uh, of, of 2010. And, and we had our chance in you know the FIFA auditorium the day before the announcement to, uh, you know, to make our pitch. And uh So it's all a bit of a blur there. There was a fair amount of lobbying going on in the, in the, you know, in the town, the, the couple days before, before the vote. Um, but how, he, how he, does that lobbying express itself? What would be an example? Um, it would be a case of someone from our bid committee and, and, you know, or even Sunil himself, you know, saying, sir, do you have 15 minutes today where I can come to your hotel room and, And tell you why I think you should vote tomorrow for the United States to host the World Cup. Take me through that day of the main event. Well, again, it was a multi-day process in that we had our big presentation with President Clinton on stage, et cetera, et cetera. Landon Donovan was, was part of one of our speakers as well. So there was that. 
uh, and then the vote, uh, the vote was to take place the following day, starting at around noon. And it was a multi round vote. And then we would, you know, we would go over to FIFA. Uh, actually, it wasn't FIFA headquarters. It was, uh, it was a conference hall in, in Zurich. Um, we would, we would be locked in, in a room and then told, Oh, they, you know, white smoke. There, <laughs> there's a winner. <laughs> and remember they had to do two of these. Uh, there's a winner and, you know, come down. We'll make the announcement. And they announced 2018. And 2022 simultaneously, even though they probably voted on one for three rounds and then the other for three rounds, four rounds. Once the announcement happened, what's your first memory from that and what went through your head? Well, I, I, I was sitting in a seat that had a slightly obstructed view by a pillar, and I'm not sure my eyesight was good enough to see see the type on the card that was in the envelope that Sepp Blatter opened. Um, and I, my eyes were darting back and forth between the television monitors that would help me see and, and the actual podium. And um, it was a large enough room and there was so much bustling and so much anticipation and then so much shrieking when it happened that his audio was was drowned out. Uh, quite honestly, and I, I didn't need, for a second. I didn't even realize that he had actually named Qatar instead of ourselves. Uh, but then it was pretty obvious from the body language of the Qatar delegations sitting next to me alphabetically. <laughs> it was you know Qatar, United States, that you know that they had won and we had lost. And um, you know, I remember you know, just being in a daze. I mean, you 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 spend two years of your life quit your career, in effect, <laughs> spend two years of your life working on something that has only one acceptable outcome. And you just didn't get it. And, and um, you know, I mean, it, it, it was not so much, you know, bitterness, but, but disbelief and frustration, I think, more than anything. I, I didn't, I, you know, no recriminations, no nothing, just, okay, fine. Um, you know, we have a party planned. I guess somebody's got to go to it. And <laughs> start drinking vodka. <laughs> so, so we did. <laughs> no, um, it, it took a few days to, uh, to sink in. And, and uh, obviously, then we had some cleanup to do. I mean, you know, it, it probably took us uh, a month and a half to, you know, dismantle the office, let go of the staff, document everything, do postmortem memos, all that, all that kind of thing. Sort of a sad Christmas. Who was the first person you turned to, and do you remember what you told him? No, I, I, I don't. I, it must have been John Christick, who, who was, you know, my right hand man on the bid committee throughout all this. We must have been sitting side by side, I'm, I'm sure. And I honestly don't think I had any words of wisdom, <laughs> I, you know. But I also don't think that um, any of us who worked on the actual, you know, technical specs of the bid felt that we we left anything on the table. Technically, I mean, obviously, we left something on the table vote getting, but I don't know that that was ever attainable. Um, you know, some, you know, some, some people, um, you know, like to say, well, the U.S. bid was so clean and honest. And, and, you know, first of all, we wouldn't have had it any other way. And, and you don't have Bill Clinton and Henry Kissinger on your board and behave in any other way. Um, but we also, you know, if, if we were, even so inclined as to compete in that way, then we would have lost by a huge margin, right? Because if it, if it really came down to who could shell out more money, we certainly didn't have funding. So I don't I don't think any of us felt you know that there were, we just thought it was a dumb decision. 
And I do remember in the immediate aftermath, FIFA had a little cocktail reception in the in the hall where it was announced. And I found myself standing t- uh, next to uh, Nicholas Erickson, who was, uh, I think at the time he was the head or the second in command of FIFA's broadcasting and who I had done some, some dealings with when I was at Univision. And so I knew him through that capacity as well as this capacity. And also... Um, Oh, and I'm and I'm going to forget his name, but the the gentleman um, who who was FIFA's um, sort of head of the bid process, our day to day contact uh, on the bid, and I, and the two of them were there, and they were kind of commiserating and sort of saying, "Gee, what a shame!" Because we FIFA as an administrative headquarters staff would have loved the ease of hosting the World Cup in the United States as opposed to the challenge of hosting the World Cup in Qatar, and and I and I basically said, "Gentlemen, it's." It's not that it's a, a not the proper decision or, or that I, I suspect anything has gone on. It's just it's going to come across to the world as a dumb decision. And when it comes across to the world as a dumb decision, it's going to bring down so much scrutiny on you and your processes. And, you know, good luck with that. <laughs> That was basically the, the gist of the conversation, and and of course in hindsight that that turns out to be fairly prescient. <laughs> I I don't think it was anything but just heartfelt and genuine at the time. I had no idea what it would really lead to. So during the process, was there no point when you suspected foul play? Uh, I I I didn't suspect foul play would carry the day, and. You know, honestly, as I said, I, I I don't personally, you know, know of any smoking guns that that you know show that it was foul play that carried the day. Um, I just think it's a really dumb decision, and you scratch your head and wonder how dumb decisions are arrived at. Um, and and that is one possibility, obviously. Um, I I do know that there were moments throughout the the two year campaign um, where. You know, people did things that we felt were against the rules, um, including, you know, England was giving out whatever it was, $1,000, you know, designer handbags to the wives of, um, you know, which they later asked back. And, you know, later FIFA put out a, you know, a, a memo saying, geez, those are probably over the file line. Although FIFA's initial gift giving specifications were sort of, you know, cloudy, <laughs> gray. <laughs> Nebulous. I mean, you know, gifts were okay as trinkets and tokens, but maybe not college scholarships, as in the case of uh, Olympic Committee bidding at one point. But never really clearly explained. So, so there were instances like that where where you sort of thought, you know, okay, this federation is pushing the limits a little bit. Um, Cutter, for example, um, I believe uh, paid for the expenses and therefore the sponsorship of the. the African Confederation Congress the year before the vote. Did I think that was over the foul line? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the Congress turned around and said, and we therefore don't want bidders from other nations showing up to talk to us during this, this Congress. You have to come visit us on your own nickel at a different time. Um, so I, I thought that was a little, a little over the line. Um, I do remember Qatar, um, hosted, uh, Brazil and Argentina in a national team friendly match um, less than a month before the vote and um, and I believe the federations were were paid probably 
well, paid paid more than than they would have been paid to play that match in the United States if it was based just on U.S. ticket revenue, and there there was almost no ticket revenue. Um, so, you know, was that within the rules of FIFA? Yeah, absolutely. Was it um, something that was, uh, you know, in my mind, designed to influence? Um, yeah, probably. Um, so those those things we noticed, but certainly. Um, you know, not, nothing that would cause us to say, you know, we're withdrawing from the bidding because we don't think the, you know, the vote is fair or whatever. Did you meet Sepplatter after that? I've run into him after that. Yeah. Yeah. How was that conversation? <laughs> I, I think um, at the time he said to me that he thought that um, it was a shame that we hadn't won and that you know, FIFA would have been better off hosting the 2022 World Cup in the United States. But, you know, my guess is he probably said something similar to the Australian bid executive about Australia and so on. So I, I don't, you know, you take that with a grain of salt. Um, although I do to this day, I think that um, this was a case of FIFA not being fully in control of its own process and the process taking on a life of its own. And, and certainly um, with hindsight, you should never have bid the two simultaneously because then that created the opportunity for a, you, your block of voters votes for my European tournament. And then I'll help steer a block of voters for your tournament in 2022. Setting up that dynamic in, in hindsight was a bigger error than anybody could have imagined. Then in the past year or so, when the huge scandal broke out, about what's been going on at FIFA for years with corruption and so on. Do you remember the moment when you heard the news within quotation marks? And how did you feel then? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the news for me was, you know, or the watershed moment there was um, when someone from CONCACAF one of the national federations from CONCACAF sent a picture of the cash that was being distributed at the uh, Caribbean conference in relation to the upcoming presidential election and and sent that to Chuck Blazer, who was not in attendance, sent that to Chuck in New York and, and, uh, and Chuck determined that he would then forward that on to FIFA headquarters and um, – I remember I, I was at the NASL at the time, I'm pretty certain, and um, and so I was actually down in Miami and, and um, you know, talked to a couple people and on my staff there who sort of knew a little bit about FIFA and the players. And, uh, you know, we all sort of said, this is, this is high noon at the OK Corral. I mean, this is Chuck versus Jack versus Bin Hammam versus, you know, Sep versus, you know, and, and at the end of the day this action, you know, at best two people will be left standing at worst zero <laughs> and, and just sort of viewing it that way. I had no idea that that stuff had been going on before that in terms of Chuck's involvement with the FBI and, and, uh, and really didn't, you know, know much. I, I really, you know, I, I, but to me, that's, that's the moment when it, you know, when, because, um, you know, there had been for better or for worse for, for two decades or more an alliance between, Chuck and, and Jack that arguably did a lot for, for the growth of CONCACAF. Um, and, you know, it's always, it's very hard for me when I, when I read stuff about what Chuck has done, um, 
it's hard for me because he 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 actually did some good things for the sport of soccer and and things that that ultimately benefited Univision at times too, and including standing up, you know, in that during the course of that that negotiation in two thousand five. Um, but also, he and I worked together um, to uh, to make the Gold Cup, frankly, what it is today. Um, Chuck was fairly uh, fairly enlightened as a marketer and understood that if he could arrange the tournament in such a way as to to make it a more val- valuable television property for Univision, then that would ultimately make it a more valuable tournament for the players and for the sponsors and so on. And, and it would the difference between the Gold Cup and in 2001, I think, was the first one that I, I was involved in the telecast of. And, and what it is today is is enormous. And that's that's largely attributable to Chuck's you know, foresight in trying to, you know, listen to broadcasters and marketers about what, you know, what would make it a better tournament and how it would work. And and so when I hear some of the things that, you know, were, were going on, I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling to me because, it, you know, on one hand, the growth in CONCACAF has been stellar and, and beneficial to everybody involved in the sport in the region. On the other hand, the stuff going on behind the scenes is so, so hideous as to almost negate it all. And, and so it's, it's very painful for me to see that. In 2011, you became the commissioner of the NASL, the North American Soccer League, as its first commissioner. How was it stepping into that job after coming out of the bidding for the World Cup and now in a, in a very different type of position? It was terrific, actually. I, um, you know, was uh, struggling to sort of figure out what it was that I was going to do with my life post the uh, the bid, uh, since I wasn't going to be spending the next ten years or so getting ready to host the World Cup. <laughs> and uh, and the phone rang, and uh, it was a couple gentlemen from uh, from Traffic uh, who were looking to uh, you know reform the NASL, if you will, um, and had a number of teams all poised to do that, and they needed a commissioner, and and so I. Basically, you know, got recruited within a matter of a couple of weeks and Alexis and I packed our bags and got on a plane to Miami and <laughs> that was that. You know, it was not a, not a very long process. It was a lot of, a lot of fun for me because, um, you know, I had just come off a situation where I was, you know, organizing a small soccer staff. I, I think I brought a lot of soccer credibility, um, to the league immediately with my resume, as well as some ideas, um, you know, from my television background about, about marketing the league. And, you know, I, I enjoy the game so much. It was just fun that, that sort of my, my moments outside the office were moments and, and, you know, watching the strikers play or the rowdies play or, and it was, uh, it was great. It was, it was intense. Um, I, you know, during the season, I was pretty much working seven days a week I, and logging more than a hundred thousand miles on American and United, <laughs> but, uh, each, <laughs> um, but, uh, no, it was, it was terrific. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, my wife and I had always wanted to, uh, spend some time living together in a in a foreign city and Miami's as close as that comes in the United States. So it was it was kind of fun culturally too. We we had a blast exploring Florida and and, and Miami and getting into the culture there. To somebody who's maybe not as familiar with it, what would you say are the main differences between the NASL and the MLS, both as entities, how they're run and and how they're structured? The obvious difference is that the MLS has a uh, in effect, a, a collective player pool and, and has always been run with, you know, with that notion behind it. 
in the NASL, you truly had independent teams making completely independent business decisions in the best interests of their their local team, as opposed to a, you know a, a collective. You know, for whatever reason, for better or for worse, in the foundation of the MLS, there was this notion that U.S. professional soccer wouldn't succeed if it was truly independent teams um, operating independently under under the umbrella of a league, the way it happens in in other leagues in the United States. And the NASL, you know, was was actually founded by very independent-minded USL teams that banded together, and of course, they didn't want to give up that. That independence. So that's really the the single biggest area of differentiation. But it, but it is an area that's quite important because if you're an investor from South America or from Central America or from Europe or from Asia or from Africa, that's the way your soccer team is run in that territory. And the only the only territory where soccer is run the way the MLS is run is in the United States. For the greater good and for the growth of the game, what's an ideal structure? I'll be the first to admit that all American sports leagues are run on, you know, what I would sort of laughingly refer to as socialist principles <laughs> in our free market economy. You know, and by that I mean um, if if you're the Super Bowl champs, you get the worst draft pick the next year. So everything is being done to minimize market advantages um, uh, and and allow all the teams in the league to compete on an even keel. Which, by the way, has a lot of merit in that. You know, the, the, you don't have situations in American professional sports leagues the way you do in in Spain, where you. You may just have two top clubs that are always battling for the championship every year, and and the advantage of being in Madrid or Barcelona as a market is enormous, and the same clubs are getting relegated and going back and forth and so on. Um, so there's a lot of advantages to that. I, I think the MLS goes maybe one step farther with the sort of collective player contracts, but it, it, it was done, you know, for the reason that they felt that the sport needed some some sort of business places advantages to. Uh, you know, to compete in successfully in the United States against the more entrenched sports. And to be completely fair, it's, it's a, you know, thoroughly vetted business model that is, I guess, uh, permissible in large part because the, the marketplace for soccer players is not just the United States. And, and so there are many, many alternatives and they're not, you know, constricting competition. And it's probably good that the NASL exists as well, <laughs> side by side, to show that they're not overly constricting competition. So I, I don't know that there is one necessarily one ideal format uh, for a soccer league in the United States. And, and we talked about this a little bit briefly before recording, but one of the huge benefits of the United States in, in everything is its extraordinary size and, and diversity and scale. But actually, when it comes to running a pro soccer league, that's probably a negative. You know, England can have 20 teams in the premiership and the, and the longest trip is a two-hour train ride. You know, not quite the case with the United States. Um, think about that in terms of promotion and relegation. I mean, there, there's no chance that London and Manchester will be without a premiership team. Even if one of them goes down, there's, there's multiple teams. But in the United States, can you imagine if you lost the Los Angeles and the Chicago market in the same year to, <laughs> to a lower division? So there, there are definitely things that are happening in the, in the United States that mean that the European model of how soccer's business is run doesn't necessarily, you know, conform to the, the best interests of the United States. And so you're always going to have subtle differences. You know, I, I think MLS has done a tremendous job and, you know, maybe the single best thing that they've done is exist for 20 straight years. Um, so that you can now have 
you know, second and third generation MLS fans of the same team and the consistency they managed to maintain over those years. And, and certainly the, the soccer specific stadiums they've managed to build during that time has really revolutionized the game in the United States. So I, I don't, don't want to suggest in any way, shape, or form that I think MLS is, is doing a bad job, but I do think that their, you know, their business model is different <laughs> and not necessarily the best or, or the worst. There's a very strong core audience if we gather both the NASL and the MLS viewership. But one of the things everybody's struggling with is TV viewership, obviously, yeah. which is a tremendously important component. What can we do to get like that next tier audience tuning in? And I know it's a million dollar question, but because you've been on the broadcasting side of things, is there anything you see we can improve on or work on to get that next tier viewer into it? You know, the, the answer to that is that there are probably between 120 and 150 million soccer fans in the United States, but they have so many options of, of what to see. Unlike, you know, when I was in my 20s and wanted to be a soccer fan and could only find one 90-minute and compilation of soccer highlights on TV on PBS once a week, you know, now, you know, you can watch... 50, 60, 70 games a week easily without having much of a specialized, you know, cable TV package. And, and that's not counting what you can probably pirate off the, <laughs> off the internet on your laptop. I, I don't know that there is a way that MLS or NASL or any sort of week in, week out domestic league in the United States could capture the lion's share of those hundred plus million viewers. On a regular basis, um, short of having literally every single of the best soccer players in, you know, so I mean, I, I do think NFL fans can argue that the best brand of American football played, you know, in the world is played in the NFL. And so there's a validity for watching regular season NFL games. But even the NFL this year, the ratings are down a bit. I mean, there's a saturation in sports television. And, you know, soccer fans aren't exclusive to soccer. And certainly MLS fans aren't exclusive, you know, to, to the MLS. They, they watch other things. And I, I don't know how you can, how you can overcome that. I think, I think the better question would be, how do you grow the revenue for MLS dramatically if you're not going to double or triple the television ratings and you're not in, in the short term and you're not going to therefore, you know, create a dramatic bidding war that increases the television rights by not double or triple, but, you know, 10 or 20 fold. I, I don't have the answer to that. I, I, and I don't realistically see that happening. I don't, I, I think if we tried to get into a bidding war to take every single premiership player and put them in, Toronto and Red Bulls and and you know DC United, I, I we wouldn't win that bidding war, even if we even if we thought we had the money, would you know they would step up to the plate and outbid us, no matter what we put on the table. As it relates to the uh, sports broadcasting and its future, there is now some talks of potentially even some of the big uh, platforms such as Facebook and maybe Twitter and, and even Netflix in the future might get involved in bidding for some of the big sports rights. What are your thoughts around that? Well, that sort of thing has been going on ever since I've been in television, quite honestly. You know, the biggest competitor to the networks um, while I was acquiring rights, you know, was not so much 
you know, the other two networks. Um, it was, uh, it was the idea that ESPN could come in and, and bid based not on the advertising revenue for the viewership of the event, but also based on some portion of their multi-billion dollar subscriber revenue. Somebody that is trying to establish a new cable network. TNT was built on the back of the NBA. You know, a, a number of these networks, traditional networks were built on the strength of leagues. Fox arguably built on the strength of the NFL package. So that's been going on for decades and decades. This slightly new twist, of course, is, is that now it isn't just um, traditional television networks. It, it's just different distribution platforms. And, um, you know, there was a period when I was at ABC Sports and we were, an, you know, not annually, but every four or five years renewing Monday Night Football. You know, we always sort of winced and thought, you know, gosh, if the home shopping network is willing to spend a penny more than we are for Monday Night Football, the NFL might just put it on the home shopping network, despite all the wonderful things we've done to build a culture around Monday Night Football. Now, I don't think they actually would have done that, but, but it was, you know, we, we were already seeing that notion and, um, you know, I'm a big fan of some of the stuff that's that's gone on with Netflix, for instance. You know, I, I, I do foresee the day when very untraditional services, distribution services, will spend vast sums to acquire the rights to um, to sports events and, and take them off, you know, what we call free television. And, you know, that day is is very much right around the corner. And it's it's probably one of the reasons why you've seen a large number of multi-year long-range deals being done for some of the premier events so so that contracts for the olympics and things like that are stretched really far out into the future you know farther than we can realistically see those networks operating business as normal because they they believe that the content is ultimately going to determine the viewership not the distribution platform and they're doing their best to preserve the best content on their distribution platform or else trusting that they'll evolve the new distribution platform in time to 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 amortize what they've paid for the for the content but you know that's that's that is going on as we speak it's really been going on in one shape or form for the past 40 years We're getting towards the end here, finally. <laughs> um, I'm going to shoot a set of uh, rapid-fire questions. This should be fairly brief. Okay. What's your favorite team? Arsenal. Why? I first saw an Arsenal game in 72 or 73. I, I guess that's probably the time that Fever Pitch was being written. My uncle, uh, who lived in Surrey, decided it was time to further my football education. And he may have just thrown a darted a dartboard and we ended up at Highbury, but I was, I was bitten. The deal that you've made that you're most proud of? Probably um, getting the 1994 World Cup on, uh, on ABC Sports. The most important characteristic to be successful in the types of positions that you've been in? Knowing that you can't possibly know everything you need to know and trusting others to help you. What advice would you give your 20-year-old and 35-year-old self? <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't want to spoil it by going back and, and, uh, and thinking about what I might have done differently. Um, I, I think one thing that I did well, both as a 20 year old and 35 year old was to 
both in my personal and professional life, live in the moment and appreciate what I had at the time and not overly analyze where it was leading me or whether it was part of my master plan. Obviously, I was very fortunate in the way things turned out both personally and, and, and professionally, but honestly, it wasn't, it wasn't heavily orchestrated. I went with the flow and did what felt right at the time. And that's, that's been kind to me. The most well-known soccer contact in your phone. <laughs> it's probably Sunil. A book recommendation. That's a tough one. Recently, I read, uh, I want to say it's uh, Thinking Slow, Thinking Fast. I can't remember the author's name precisely, but fascinating. You get to have dinner with three people in the soccer world, past or present, and let's assume language is not a barrier. Who are those three? Oh, oh. I, you know, right now that might be um, Arsene Wenger, uh, Pep Guardiola, and, and Jurgen Klinsmann. <laughs> I think they, they have enough in common and enough different that that would be a pretty funny conversation. And I, I'm sure I could pick up some tips from my U12 boys. And where would you take them? <laughs> Probably have to be New York, right? Let's, let's pick something here in Hastings. Uh, we'll, we'll go down to the mill and we'll have a nice, uh, we'll, nice locally brewed lager. <laughs> Last two. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? Sure. Uh, I, I, I recommend um, getting yourself involved in a, uh, in a professional career that, uh, that mirrors your personal passion because it makes it an awful lot easier to wake up in the morning, shave, get on the train and go to the office um, if you're doing something that excites you outside of the office as well. And, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate in my, in my professional career that I've, I've been associated with things that I would want to be associated with anyway. And that um, if I'm watching Michigan play Notre Dame in college football on a Saturday in 1990, I was doing homework. <laughs> for my office job. So uh, I, I would say that's, uh, that's very high on, on my list of life's priorities. Who do you think I should interview here next? Talk to Jürgen. Talk to Jürgen Klinsmann. I, I think he's, he's got an interesting mix of, uh, of German upbringing with, uh, with absorbing a great deal of American culture. He's, uh, in my mind, exceptionally bright and uh, very passionate and, uh, and willing, to, willing to try new things. Um, so I think he'd be fun. And I, I mean, I've met him, and, and he certainly was fun for me to meet him. So. I agree. I can imagine him being a, a fascinating person. Um, David, well, first, thank you so much for doing this, taking plenty of time uh, out of your day. It, it took more stamina than I had imagined. <laughs> <laughs> you know, once you get going, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's been incredible. Um, you've shared some fascinating insights. It's truly been uh, an honor. And, uh, you know, it seems like you've had great fun along the way. So thank you and uh, good luck in any future endeavors. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes, write a review, tell your friend about it. I would truly appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to send me an email at Sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. The handle is at coffeesfootball. 
Stay tuned for next episode. It will be another amazing one. Thanks again and have an amazing week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.